Okay, uh, this morning, my good friend Brian, Brian Bojo upstaged me a little bit on the whole Reformation thing. Uh, but this is reputed to be at least historically the 500th anniversary of John Knox. And a lot of you might not even know who John Knox is. This is a statue of John Knox with yours truly standing next to it in, uh, in Edinburgh, Scotland. That's at New College, uh, University of Edinburgh. And John Knox was a flaming man of God who stood up to the queen and just about anybody else and told them what God's standards were and what his expectations were. And uh, he had a huge influence not only on the country of Scotland, but also on our nation in many ways, not just theologically, but uh, it may surprise some of you to find out that the, the people who are the heritage of John Knox, the Presbyterians in Scotland, actually established a governmental system in the church. And there was a guy named John Witherspoon, who was a Presbyterian pastor who came over from Scotland to America. You say, this is a, sounds like a history class. I don't mean it to be that way. John Witherspoon was the signer of the Declaration of Independence, but he was one of the key guys in helping establish our governmental system. And it's based upon the Presbyterian form of government. For better or for worse, that's the way it is. Um, but that's, that's uh, kind of the big deal about John Knox. And you say, why are, we, why are we having bagpipes this morning? Because of the heritage that we have. And also, you have to understand, you know, the whole gig about angels playing harps in heaven, that's, not, that's, that's a big lie. I'm not sure where they came from. They actually play bagpipes. So um, you better get used to it because you're going to be hearing them through eternity. It's going to be wonderful. It's kind of like going down to the Scottish Games all year long, you know. It's, just, it's a great thing. But also, it's important for us to remember uh, the, the, the Reformation because, humanly speaking, we literally wouldn't be here today doing what we're doing if it wasn't for the Reformation. Virtually every family in Protestantism traces their heritage back to what happened in the Reformation. And even the significant changes that have happened over the centuries in the Roman Catholic Church find a lot of their impetus, a lot of the, the dynamic that caused those changes to happen, coming out of the Reformation. So even though we're not here to have a history lesson, Edmund Burke, who was an Englishman, don't hold that against him, um, but Edmund Burke, who was a great statesman, was the one who coined the phrase, those who don't, in history, don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And that's why we try to remember our heritage and remember the background of the Reformation. Now, there were many reasons for the Reformation. Uh, a lot of things were happening at that time throughout the history of the European world that brought the Reformation together. But as Brian was saying earlier, it probably found itself coming together around this guy, Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther was a monk, a Catholic monk, and he studied a lot of theology, but he was encouraged by one of his leaders to really start studying the Bible. And Luther became very serious in studying the Bible and praying in the Bible and reflecting on what the Bible was teaching. And as he was doing that for a period of years, literally, he began to look at what he was taught in the church and comparing it to what the Bible was teaching. And it really troubled him a great deal to see the differences. And it kind of all came together one day when another guy, this guy, came to town. Yes, click. Here. It's going to come. It really will. There it is. There it is. This guy, it's, that's all the kind of picture we have of him, but his name was Johann Tietzel. 
And not the, not, not the name that you're going to remember that much about the Reformation, except for this. He was an emissary of the Vatican. And he came to town to preach and to raise money to build the Vatican. And this is how he, he preached, and this is how he raised his money. He said, he would get up and he literally would say things like, I know that you love your mother, and I know you love your father, and I know you're concerned about Aunt Sally, because they all have passed away, and all of them have gone to purgatory. Now, purgatory at that time was considered kind of a halfway house between heaven and hell. And if you died, you normally would go to purgatory in their theology, and depending upon the things that happened, you'd either go to heaven or go to hell. And so Johann Tietzel came to Martin Luther's town and he said, listen, I know you're concerned about your parents and about Aunt Sally and about all those other loved ones who've passed away. And this is what we're going to do for you. They're sitting in purgatory right now. And if you give money, we'll let them out. He had a cute little phrase he used. He said, as soon as the coin in the coffer clings, the soul from purgatory springs. And man, people were hearing that and they were going, I don't want my parents in purgatory anymore. So they were paying up big time. I mean, they were pouring their life savings in and giving them money so that their family members could get out of purgatory and go to heaven. Well, Luther's watching this. And he's really getting ticked off. I mean, he's been reading the Bible, and he's been thinking about what the Bible teaches, and he hears that, and it really makes him angry. And so he he was studying passages like this one. Uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one should boast. Now look at that fat passage for a minute. Look at the key elements. By grace you've been saved. And it's, it's through faith, and that faith isn't even your own doing. That's a gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now he's reflecting on that message, and he hears this phrase, as soon as the coin in the coffer clings... The soul from purgatory springs. Now look at the difference between those two. It's drastically different. 180 degrees different. And Luther's thinking about this, and he's really angry. And so he goes home, and he's, he's, he's kind of meditating on it. And as he meditates on it, as Brian said earlier, he comes up not with one or two. He comes with, up with 95 things that he felt were were wrong in the way the church was teaching. And like Ryan said, the Twitter of the day was posting things on kind of a community blackboard where you'd post things. It was actually the, it was actually the, literally the, the uh, Wittenberg, the door on the, on the Wittenberg cathedral. You'd, people would go up and post things on there all the time, you know, Joe Smith owes me five bucks, and, you know, all these little messages, you know, you you want to declare things. Well, Luther goes up there, he takes his 95 theses, and he posts them up there. Here's another thing. In the Reformation, was right around the time when movable type and printing was taking place, which meant that the populace was moving from being pretty illiterate, only the priests and the royalty were people who were able to read, 
it was moving to the point where the common people could read. And so as Luther had this posted up there, people were reading it and began talking about it around the town and began comparing the two messages. As soon as a coin in the coffer clings, the soul from purgatory springs over against by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Now, why was it a big deal for Luther? Well, there's a number of reasons why. First of all, Human beings, the passage in Ephesians says, are not saved because of their own works. That means the money that you would give into the coffer or your good works and your activities or anything else weren't going to make you good enough for God. And Luther was convinced of this. He had done everything he possibly could humanly to be good enough for God, and he recognized he wasn't. And now this guy's coming and saying, give us money and we'll let your your family members out of purgatory? No. The second thing that came to Luther was the fact that salvation is not our doing at all. Earlier in the passage in Ephesians, Paul had said, the apostle Paul, the writer, said, we're dead in our transgressions and sins. A dead person can't do anything to make them good. We have to be made alive again. And that's what Paul was concerned about, the idea of salvation, being made alive to get, again, salvation, Paul sees in Ephesians, is not based upon our works. It's based on God's grace alone. And when we talk about salvation, we're not just talking about when a person comes to an experience of becoming a Christian, receiving Christ. That's part of it. That's the beginning But what Paul meant and what Luther meant was not only this experience of conversion, but the rest of your life on the continuum, the rest of your life was by grace. And even your, your entrance into heaven, your graduation into heaven is all by grace. It's not by your works. It's not like you get saved by grace and then suddenly you do everything you can to be good enough after that point. But what he was saying was it's all from beginning to the end based upon grace. And grace is unmerited favor, undeserved. It's not something that we do something for. It's something that we are given. And that's the point that that Luther was driving home. No, no, he says. You don't pay to get somebody out of purgatory. You don't pay to get yourself into heaven. You don't do good works to get into heaven. This is a gift of God that he provides to those. For by grace you're saved through faith, he says, in the scriptures. Now, what, is, what do I mean exactly by grace? Let me give you an illustration to broaden your idea of, of what I mean by grace. I shared with this before that my first two years in college were at Virginia Military Institute. So it's like West Point or like uh, the Naval Academy or a place like that. And you know that the first year that the persons in those schools, they go through all kinds of activities that the upperclassmen put them through to help them to learn what it means to uh, be in the military and to be in their place. And so at VMI, we we were called rats because that's the lowest form of any creatures, and that's the way we were treated, okay? And there was all kinds of lists of things you could do and you couldn't do as a rat. Uh, The way that you walked, when you could talk and you couldn't talk, the way that you ate, all was regulated by these lists of rules. 
And it happened one day that I was finishing having been on guard duty, which is really just a blast. Um, and, um, but I was walking back, and I had a dress uniform on. And at the bottom of your dress uniform, there was this little, uh, there was this little snap, kind of an eye and hole kind of a snap thing. And, uh, and somehow mine had come undone. Now, I was walking back in the barracks where there wasn't anybody around, so it wouldn't be embarrassing to have this little thing undone. However, that was against the rules of rats being able, you weren't allowed to have that undone while you were out in public anywhere. So I'm walking back from guard duty, and suddenly I hear this voice behind me that went like this, whoa, rat. That's the universal statement of there's problems here, okay? So I stopped. And he, this person came up to me and he said, who gave you permission to have your latch unlatched? I didn't even know it was unlatched. And I said, you know. And he said, I'm just going to have to write you up. Now, what does that mean? Well, we had a thing there called the Rat Disciplinary Committee. Doesn't that sound like fun? And the, the Rat Disciplinary Committee, or the RDC, uh, if, if you were doing something wrong and you were caught... Uh, an upperclassman would write it on a three-by-five card. He'd write it on two three-by-five cards. He'd give one to you, and he'd give one to the RDC. And you would go before them after taps at nighttime, and they had a little, you know, judge and jury thing. They were the judge, and they were the jury. And they'd f- see what your indiscretion was, and then they would meet out the punishment. And the punishment was at a room next door to them that was lined with, um, with heating, the heating system, heating regulators, and they turned the heat up in the room very high, and there were, there were upperclassmen in there who would uh, guide you through exercises, okay? With your rifle, you'd be doing jumping jacks with your rifle, you'd be doing push-ups with your rifle, you'd be doing all kinds of stuff, uh, squat thrusts, all kinds of different things, and uh, depending upon your discretion was the amount of time you had to be in there. It could be 15 minutes, it could be 45 minutes, all different kinds of things. Um, and so, uh, I was uh, going to receive the due punishment for my breaking the law, okay? And I was scared spitless, like all of us were. What am I going to do when I go up there? And I went and I talked. All of us had big brothers. I went and talked to my big brother about it. And my big brother, without talking to me about it, went and did what was called pulled my card. He went to the rat disciplinary committee, and he had the card pulled so that I would no longer have to go up there and experience the punishment. There wasn't anything I did to deserve him doing that. He didn't even tell me he was going to do that. He just did it, and one day he walked up and handed me the card with a big smile on his face. I was relieved. That was grace. Unmerited favor. I didn't have to go up there and be sweated out and worked out for all my, you know, all my indiscretions. That's grace, undeserved favor. And that's, in a small picture, a big picture of what God did for us. When we were condemned, when we were lost, when when, when our lives were worthy of condemnation, God sent Christ for us to pay for our sins. Now, how do you feel this morning about this idea of salvation by grace? Some of us 
When we think about God and our relationship with God, we actually make God into our parents' image. And we actually begin thinking that God views us and treats us like our parents for good or for ill. We think that God is like a big father or a big mother in heaven that's much like our father and our mother. And when we think about the ways that we've acted and the things that we've done and the way that we were treated when we were growing up, we think that's the way God is. That's a distortion. The scripture says that God loves us in an unconditional manner. Some of us don't think we could ever be good enough for God. And that's true. The problem is we, we know about the, the salvation that Christ has earned for us. But we feel as though we are so bad that even that isn't good enough. The blood of Christ isn't good enough to cleanse us from sin? God's love is so expansive that even when we feel like we're not good enough, when he knows everything about us, when there's nothing that we could hide from him, and he would still send Jesus to die to take care of our falling short. Now, actually, there's some of us, actually, there's some in this room who feel like we're actually good enough for God. And that if we were to die today and to go to heaven, we should be able to say to him, listen, God, I know that I've done some bad things, but the good things I've done are much more than the bad things, and you really need to let me into your heaven. That's a weak understanding of our brokenness. And the scriptures would say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If your goodness doesn't reach the glory of God, it's not good enough. How do you feel about the grace of God this morning? It's an unearned gift, and it's available. As a matter of fact, John, the apostle, wrote, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, and not only that, but be given the right to be called children of God. That is what Martin Luther came to believe and understand. And so when he heard Johannes Tetzel teaching that you had to do these things to get your family out of purgatory, and he realized that Jesus was the only answer for him, he couldn't stand it. He became angry because he knew that it was only by God's grace. You know that message that Martin Luther believed and transformed his life is available for us this morning? If you do not know that God's grace has been given to you, provided to you through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. I want to encourage you to explore that. I want to encourage you to study that, just like Luther studied it. (coughs) I want to encourage you to talk with me, to talk to BP or to Slade or others here who would be happy to talk with you about what it means to really understand, not just understand, but to live under the mercy and the grace of God, not under the sense of condemnation from your brokenness. That is one of the the huge themes of the Reformation. Now, there's so many other things about the Reformation that came out that we could could actually talk about them well over a year and not exhaust all that came out of the, the Reformation. But what I'm hoping you're catching is that this is such a life changing message that it literally impacted every aspect of the lives of those who heard it. 
And it's the same for us. Being a Christian has real life implications. It's not just getting a, a, a free pass to heaven. It talks about transforming every way that we live, everything that we believe. Our politics are suddenly transformed because of our desire to follow Christ and to glorify God. Economics, our use of our resources, our broader understanding of how resources ought to be used for our society is impacted by this. Education, business, family, everything is then impacted in our day-to-day lives by our commitment to follow Jesus. And one of the huge areas that, that, that Luther talked about, that Calvin talked that they all talked about, was how you view what you do between Sundays. One of the themes, and the, one, the, other, the only thing that we're going to look at this morning besides salvation by grace, is this idea of that your work matters to God. And Colossians 3, 23 and 24 was one of the passages that the reformers would go back to again and again to say, what you do between Sundays matters. Whatever you do, Paul said, work hardly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. What Luther and Calvin and what Paul here is saying is that the good work that you do between Sundays is a way that we are called to glorify and honor God. Our work is to glorify and honor God. Now, the first time this really was driven home to me was when I was a junior in high school. I had made the varsity football team, and we were going through what was called two-a-days. Now, some of you know what those are, but that's in the summertime before school starts when they have two practices a day, It's when you're supposed to build your new offenses and defenses in and get back into football condition, which means you're sweating like crazy, and you're running and tackling and doing all kinds of stuff. And uh, this particular summer, um, during our two-a-days, our coaches were letting us actually uh, come home for lunch. So we'd have have a, a, a hard workout in the morning, fairly early, when it was still fairly cool, and then we'd be able to come home and rest for a couple of hours. And then about 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, when the worst of the heat had gone, but not all, but the worst of the heat had gone, we'd come back and we'd have practice later in the afternoon. And what we would do normally is we'd either go home and drink about a gallon of liquid and then just crash, or just whatever it took just to kind of recover. And this is back in the day when in my home, way back in the dark ages, only one house, only one room in the whole house was air conditioned. And it was my parents' bedroom. And my parents were both off at work, and so I'd come home after practice in the morning, and I would, uh, like I said, drink about a gallon of liquid to try to, to refresh myself, and then I would go lay down and try to sleep. And I remember that's when I would also try to have some time alone with the Lord. So I remember laying on my parents' bed, turning on the air conditioner, and just kind of recovering, and opening up the Bible and reading this verse, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do. Work hardly is for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And I was trying to read that and think about it and say, what difference does this make for me? And I realized as I was meditating on it that I was practicing for my coaches. And I was practicing not to embarrass myself with the other players. And as I was thinking about that, I was going, oh my goodness. You mean to tell me that my pra- in my practice, I'm, I'm there 
to, to practice heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that it's for the Lord that I'm going to receive my reward, that I am I'm actually going to football practice to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And I couldn't go back to sleep. It was just flying around in my mind. Man, the way that I was dogging it on those sprints, the way I was doing this particular thing, the way, you know, it just, it just hit me. I, I'm supposed to be there for Jesus. Doesn't mean I'm going to be good, but it means I'm going to give my best. So I went back to practice that afternoon, and um, I just said, whatever you do, do it for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just remember going at it, and there was one particular exercise I can remember. It was one of these things where um, you would lay down on the ground like this, and another player would lay down about five feet behind you, opposite you, with their head and your head being right across from each other. And when the coaches blew the whistle, one of the two would have the football, and the other one would be the tackler. And uh, the, the idea was one person's going to make it through the other person, okay? You're either going to tackle the runner or the runner's going to run through you. And, uh, and I can just remember being there on the ground because I was chosen and I had to lay down there on the ground thinking, okay, whatever you do, do it unto Jesus. Whatever you do, do it unto the Lord Christ. Sounds crazy. But he blew that whistle and I said, you know, in Jesus' name, amen, you know. And I get up and I just went hard as I could and I just went plowing through the guy. And he was wondering, what, what are you doing? You know, the guy, why are you hitting me so hard? And, uh, you know, he kind of said a few things to me after he got up off the ground saying, lay off a little bit, okay, you know. But I'm thinking to myself, okay, am I going to listen to him or is it Jesus, you know. So we do it again, you know, get up, bam, we're into him again. I w- I'd like to say that every time I practiced, I practiced that hard. But that day my practice was different because I realized that whatever you do, Put your whole heart and soul into it as work done unto the Lord and not unto men. And that's the call that the scriptures give us as far as our work. Now, this really becomes radical because if you think about it then, I'm trying to get this thing up. Come on, baby. Work done for the glory of God is ministry. Work done for the glory of God is ministry. Now that that is really a radical idea because this is the way we're prone to think. Okay? We're prone to think this way. My job is to provide for my family. My job is to do well in school so that I can get a good job so that I can provide for my family and provide for myself. And my job then, because I'm a Christian, is to give money to the church or to give money to other ministries so they can do the work of God. Okay, so I work hard so that I can take care of my family and be responsible, and that I can also give money to the church or give money to other ministries so they can do the kingdom work of the kingdom of God. And then, of course, along with that, as a Christian, I'm going to do Christian things like I'm going to, I'm going to serve in the church, maybe I'll work in the nursery, maybe go on a short-term missions trip, uh, maybe be in a community group, uh, Sunday school, do other things like that. But you see, there's a difference between what I'm doing between Sundays and what the people in ministry are doing. And somehow there's even sort of a hierarchy. The people who are missionaries obviously are the highest. And then you have, maybe you have, you know, the, the ministers and the people at church and the next one. Then you kind of, And I'm kind of down here, but I'm just kind of doing my thing and giving money to the church and doing stuff as I can fitting in in between times. 
That's the way we tend to think. That does not fit Colossians chapter 3. That's the very antithesis of what the reformers were teaching. They were teaching that what you do between Sundays done for the glory of God is ministry. Now, hang on for a second and hear what this means. The implication of that is that there is church work, but then there's the work of the church. You get that? There's church work, and then there's the work of the church. Church work is is developing and growing our relationships in the context of the body and developing programs and other activities to help us grow in our faith and grow in our understanding. Uh, it says in Ephesians 4.12 that we're to be uh, involved in equipping the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That means the work of BP and the work of me and others who are involved in Christian ministry is to be equipping you to do your ministry between Sundays. That is what church work is. And then the work of the church is for you doing your ministry between Sundays where you live, where you work, and where you play. Paul says you are picked representatives of Christ wherever he places you to be his representatives to be doing his work. Now, that's a radically different understanding of how I view what I do between Sundays than what our churchianity views views it as. You are literally Christ's ministers. And what you come to do here is to be refreshed and encouraged and taught and and, and develop an understanding and grow so that you can do your ministry more effectively between Sundays. That's a radically different idea. And that's what the Reformers taught, and that's what we've been teaching. That's why we had Steve Garber come in town last week. Uh, Some of you heard Steve at Berry College, um, and he was here as well on Sunday night. We uh, we didn't have the um, capacity last week to sell his book by by credit card. So we have that this morning, if you'd be interested in picking this up. But Steve wrote this book, Visions Visions of Vocation, Common Grace for the Common Good. Numbers of us have been getting this and are reading it or getting into some study groups looking at it. But this book basically says what you do between Sundays is your ministry and talks about how that takes place. So we'll have those available for you if you're interested outside afterwards. We don't get anything from it. Just wanted to let you know that's available. But let me tell you a a story in conclusion about a friend of mine who was one of my mentors. His name was Paul Malone. Now, Paul Malone was a classic pagan, okay? Paul would wake up in the morning, and uh, instead of making coffee in the morning, he would go down to the, to, the, uh, to, the, to the kitchen before the family woke up, and he would put two glasses on the table next to the sink. One glass he would fill with orange juice, and the other glass he would fill with vodka. And he'd take a, he'd take a swig of the orange juice, and then he'd take a swig of the vodka, swig of the orange juice, swig of the vodka, and he'd keep going at it until he threw up. And that's how he'd start his day. And he was living this kind of a life until one day he saw his son with a Bible hidden under his arm go running into the bathroom. And he was wondering what was going on. Actually, he knew what was going on. His son was going into the bathroom and locking the bathroom door and reading the Bible in his bathroom because he thought if his dad saw him reading the Bible, his dad would get angry at him and and curse him out and 
Who knows what he would do? But, my, but Paul was so intrigued with seeing his son running into the bathroom and reading the Bible that he later went to his son's room and found his son's Bible and began reading it himself. And through a work of the Holy Spirit, God transformed this vodka and orange juice drinking pagan into a believer. And then his wife became a believer. And then they started going to church. Then they started having a real heart for the singles in their church. And they started being involved in opening their home up for the singles and having them come over every Sunday and hanging out together and doing different things. And it was great. And by the time I got to know Paul, he was involved in doing this, this ministry. And this is what Paul used to say. He'd say, you know, I work for Timken Bearing Company. I sell bearings for Timken Bearing Company in order to earn the money so that I could have the money in order to do my ministry. You hear that? I sell bearings for Timken Bearing Company between Sundays so that I can earn the money so that I can do my ministry with singles to the church. Now, I love Paul Malone, and he had a huge impact upon my life. But if Paul was alive today, what I would say to him is, Paul, thank God for your life and the work that you've done with singles. Thank God for you and your wife pouring yourselves out for them. Keep it up. But Paul, selling bearings for Timken Bearing Company is not just a way to get money to do your ministry. That's your ministry too. That's your ministry too. We are saved by grace so that we can do our work between Sundays in the name of Jesus. Your work is not tangential, but it's integral to the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for Paul Malone and for the life he had and the demonstration he was to me of what it means to follow Christ. But Father, I thank you for the reformers, for for Luther and for Calvin and for Knox and others, and how they taught that our work is not just something we do on the side. But when we are saved by grace, we are saved not just to go to heaven, but we're saved to be your people, living your values, living Jesus' life before the watching world. I pray, Father in heaven, that even as we remember Reformation Sunday, we'll remember the fact that you save us by grace, that you save us to call us to do our work and to live our lives for the glory of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.